Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everybody, welcome back to Conspira Normal, and uh, it's your host Adam, and Serviel is here as well. Just recently, kept getting these emails to have the guests that we have on, and it was something that really intrigued me, and I was able to get this set up tonight. Tonight, we're going to talk about demonic possession with a um, psychiatrist named Dr. Richard Gallagher, who has a book out called Demonic Foes, which I believe just came out in uh, the last couple of years, I believe. I just finished it today, and... uh, it's a really excellent book about demonic possession, so uh, we're going to get into it. And uh, Dr. Gallagher, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Thank you, guys. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, like I said, the book was uh, the book was extremely enlightening. I really enjoyed it. It's kind of up my alley because uh, this is a subject that I've been interested in for a very, very long time. Something that's uh, that's really, really intrigued me. But let's talk about your your background and how you got involved in being a consultant for these exorcists when they uh, went out to exercise people with demonic possession. Well, I grew up and went to high school in in Manhattan. I I kind of got interested in the subject matter a little bit in college when I was a classics major at Princeton because I was struck how historically throughout cultural history, people have always sort of believed in evil spirits. Uh, I didn't give all that much attention to it because I didn't think I would run into a case. I had no idea how common or not it was. But after finishing my psychiatric residency at Yale, I was working at um, as an attending psychiatrist at Cornell Medical College. And um, there was a a prominent priest exorcist. Um, I call him by a pseudonym in the book. I call him Father Jacques. That's not his real name. And the only thing I disguise in the book, even though I'm sure he wouldn't mind me revealing his name, and many people know who he is, um, I, uh, I just don't name people by their correct name or locale. Uh, other than that, all the facts in the book are 100 percent accurate. And this is a, this is as opposed to a number of other books on in the subject. 
where sometimes even people who sell a lot of books, they just make things up. I mean, it's really appalling to me. So I wouldn't have written the book unless I could write a very accurate um, portrayal of getting involved in this field. In any case, this this priest exorcist, at a time when there were very few exorcists, at least Catholic exorcists at the time, you know, 25 plus years ago, he came to my office and he introduced himself and he mentioned that he had a case that he thought was not possessed, but he thought was demonically attacked uh, using a term that is popular, though other people use different terms. He felt this case was an o- oppression, not a possession. And it was essentially about a woman who was claiming to be beaten up by invisible spirits, witnessed by other people too, and showing bruises all over her body. And I said to him, well, look, Father, with all due respect, I, I just finished my psychiatric residency. I'm a little skeptical of this sort of thing. And I remember him saying with a with a smirk, he said, well, then you're, you're the perfect man for the job because he wanted someone who was not overly credulous, but who had a, you know, a good training in psychiatry. So I evaluated this woman, uh, obviously, as a physician and. I had done an internship in internal medicine as well. As a physician, I had to make sure there wasn't a bruising disorder. We had to check things like her platelets, that she didn't have a psychiatric disorder, wasn't making this up. You know, I was thinking maybe her husband is beating her up and this is, this is you know, some kind of ruse. But um, she and her husband were salt of the earth people. They both gave me a very credible story. We checked her out. We did a lot of medical tests. And I finally had to say to the priest, I said, you know, Father, this woman is very credible. And there really is no medical or psychiatric reason why this thing should be happening. And he said to me, well, thank you, Dr. Gallagher. Um, yeah, I, I he, speak, his speaking saying, Yes, uh, I I thought this was what we call a demonic oppression. So I began to get a lot of experience because he sent me a lot of cases at a time that he and his chief colleague, who was a guy I call in the book Father A, Father A himself used used that pseudonym. And uh, since there were, since the two were very prominent, they showed me cases literally all over the country. So I began to get pretty quick experience with a lot of cases of both possessions and oppressions. And, um, you know, the rest is sort of what's happened. You know, I got asked to join the International Association of Exorcists, which is approved by the Vatican. As a matter of fact, in September, I'm going to address an assembly of about 500 of them in Italy. I got asked to write articles, including from the Washington Post, eventually, Harper Collins asked me to write a book, which I did, Demonic Foes, as you mentioned. And believe it or not, the, one of the main characters in the book is one of these rare Satanist people, because I don't see Satanists all over the place like some people seem to. And uh, she had an incredibly dramatic 
possessions. So Hollywood also came knocking at my door. They're going to make a movie out of her and me, I suppose. Uh, couldn't get out of that one. And so uh, I'd like to feel that everything I, I've done in this field, I've been asked to do. And in some sense, I, I, I suppose I regard that as providential. When you would do evaluations on people, what did that entail? Would you ask them questions um, to see if there was any kind of mental illness? I mean, what um, what kind of questions would you ask or what was the technique used for these people? Well, I, I'm, I'm participating in a normal medical and psychiatric workup. So, you know, sometimes we'll order neuroimaging tests if it's a confusing case, like a CAT scan. Um, we'll have somebody do a physical exam. Uh, but the bulk of my work is, yes, taking a, a taking a an extensive history, uh, medical and psychiatric, with the emphasis on psychiatric, because a lot of the conditions that are confused with possession in the minds of the lay public uh, are psychiatric. So someone could be very psychotic; they might have schizophrenia, or say hallucinations secondary to substance abuse or something. Uh, they might have um, a strong personality disorder, even, even one prone to dark, dark uh, feelings or even evil like a sociopath. Or they may be very suggestible and, and or histrionic, so they may have a dissociative disorder like what used to be called multiple personality disorder is now called uh, dissociative identity disorder. Now, these people all might be thought either by themselves or by other people around them to be possessed, but they're not possessed. They have medical and psychiatric conditions. So I have to rule that out. Uh, a lot of times an experienced exorcist knows darn well that, you know, if the person is all of a sudden speaking foreign languages or levitating or something like that, that this goes beyond mental illness. But um, at least in America, especially the Catholic bishops who are ultimately in charge in their respective dioceses, they normally do require a medical evaluation. So again, I'm not an exorcist, but that's what they do. Uh, that, that's what they asked me to conduct. So one of the things I would ask you is, in the, like the ancient time world and medieval world, there's a lot of things that we understand as mental illness now that they probably would have thought was demonic possession. So now in 2023, how can you tell if someone is demonically possessed as opposed to just mentally ill? Well, first of all, I'm a great lover of, of history. I studied the classics at Princeton. And, and I would say that there is some truth Adam, and what you're saying, that certain conditions like certain forms of epilepsy, uh, certain odd diseases like uh, Tourette's syndrome, where the person blasphemes, uh, certainly, I'm sure throughout a lot of history, there has been confusion. Um, having said that, you know, most sensible people uh, including in, in Christian history, including in the Middle Ages. Um, it's a bit of a cliche to say that they were going around diagnosing people as uh, possessed without very strong evidence. Uh, 
you know, the great sort of semi-official Catholic thinker of the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, was very clear that there's medical illnesses and there are possessions and they're two different things. Even in the Gospels, uh, Jesus himself draws a very strong comparison between healing people from a medical illness and driving out a demon. So people in the past were not as quite as naive as um, as sometimes is assumed. Having said that, it is true that our diagnostic tools, our x-rays, our CAT scans, our diagnostic uh, systems are much better now uh, than then. And so we're even in a better position to diagnose medical illnesses with more accuracy. And that's essentially what I'm doing. I mean, you know, as a, as a well-trained physician, I can certainly recognize uh, medical and psychiatric problems. As a matter of fact, I probably, I used to be the county crisis director, and um, I've probably seen about 27,000 cases in my life. Now, these are people that came to me as patients, and of those, absolutely none of them were possessed. So we're talking about a rare condition when we talk about possession. These are people who are, the people I diagnose or discern as possessions are people who have been sent to me, often from all over the country, sometimes all over the world. And so these rare possessions, I'm seeing a lot of. Uh, my academic chairman, who was the past president of the American Psychiatric Association, estimated that I've seen more of these than any other physician in the world. I may well have seen more of these because of modern communications and Zoom and all that. I may have seen more of these cases than any physician in history. So I have a, a kind of large sample or database, uh, but I don't mean to imply that they're anything but rare. Anybody who is diagnosing possessions all over the place is mistaken. Uh, and fundamentalists can do that. But to get back to your specific question, so I certainly know how to diagnose medical and psychiatric illnesses. What I have, what one has to say, not just me, but, you know, there are other psychiatrists who do what I'm doing too. And of course, many, many priests are attempting to do uh, as best they can something similar. You have to really see clear evidence of a foreign spirit not just someone who thinks they have a multiple personality or someone, but something that indicates that a foreign spirit is attacking and or possessing the individual. So the classic signs, which you see in a lot of cases, I've seen many times each of these, is all of a sudden the person will have all this hidden knowledge. You might call it occult knowledge. Uh, similar to what, say, a fortune teller claims. And, um, you know, we can talk more about that sort of thing if you want. People who are involved in the occult often are involved with darker forces than they think they are, and they're being fed this knowledge not by whom they think they are. But that's a whole other issue. Essentially, uh, the demons will have this occult knowledge you know, for instance, I've had people who are possessed tell me how my mother had died years earlier. Not only my mother, but pretty much everybody's mother. Um, 
so they have this hidden knowledge, which is called Latra. It's a classic sign of a possession. Number two, they uh, often exhibit uh, superhuman strength, you know, far beyond what a hysterical or manic person could do. Uh, for instance, a woman who was possessed, it was reported to me by all the witnesses, she was about 85 pounds soaking wet, and she took this deacon who was very inexperienced and hadn't had people hold her down. She, when the demon manifested itself, she lunged at the, de at the deacon, threw him across the room, and this was like a 200-pound guy. I mean, that's the kind of incredible strength that some of these demons will manifest through the individual. A final classic sign is um, speaking in foreign languages. So all of a sudden, uh, the voice out of the person who's clearly taken over the body, it doesn't sound like a disembodied voice. It sounds like they're using the vocal cords, but usually the voice sounds a little bit different. The personality certainly sounds different. And they all of a sudden will start speaking or understanding or both uh language that's spoken to them for instance latin during the during many exorcisms as it used to be uh i was at an exorcism once and the woman started speaking i was again not an exorcist but just observing with about eight of eight other people uh, and this woman all of a sudden spoke this language that appeared to be sort of slavic and of course i don't know any slavic language and most of the people in the room didn't know either so we were puzzled about what was getting expressed and when the exorcism was over the priest exorcist said oh by the way she was speaking bulgarian because mm -hmm. i grew up in bulgaria even though it was obvious that this woman did not have a Bulgarian background, didn't know how to spell, didn't know how to speak Bulgarian. Um, so it has to be sort of like a fluent language, not not somebody with a an occasional um, memorized phrase or something. And I say to people, look, I mean, once you get a person, uh, I've had about 35 people report uh, levitations to me. Once you get a person who levitates, speaks perfect Latin, uh, you know, takes a guy and throws him clear across or church hall, has all kinds of occult knowledge of the individual, and is claiming, especially in a trance, to manifest itself as a foreign spirit, calls itself as foreign spirit. Um, well, that's a possession. That's, that's not mental illness. Yeah, there's clearly something more going on. Uh, there was one interesting part in your book, I remember... I'm rereading it today, where the priest was saying things in Latin, and the uh, person being exercised was responding in English, appropriately to what they were saying in Latin. And uh, I didn't think about it at the time, but the Bulgarian, I guess that that was both occulted knowledge and speaking in a, in a foreign language, because the possessed person did not know that this person was Bulgarian. Uh, yeah, she didn't, and uh, yeah. she didn't know the background of the priest. The uh, 
the woman I had mentioned who in this trance state with the demon surfacing through the poor deacon across the room, injuring him, by the way, uh, he was he was inexperienced and unprepared to deal with her. That was the same woman who uh, whose exorcism I attended, where the priest was saying prayers in Latin and the demon didn't speak in Latin, probably because, well, who knows why exactly, but certainly they were trying to uh, impress the um, observers as I was in the room, among others, and was basically commenting sarcastically on the prayers. So, for instance, in the prayers, it talks about in Latin, um, uh, ascended uh, uh, tertio die, which means uh, he ascended on the third day, speaking of the resurrection. And so the demon said, no, he didn't. Uh, So the demon was making all these kind of sarcastic remarks about the prayers. Uh, Because again, it's another good sign, although you can imagine that any kind of you know, disturbed person could make hostile comments. Uh, the demons appear to, you know, hate authentic religion uh, and Christianity, and they also uh, are quite sarcastic and uh, hostile. Um, so uh, that's sort of another typical sign of a, a genuine possession. But you have to have that in the whole context of the history. And the history will often reflect why the person is possessed. You know, people don't just get possessed out of the blue. Your average decent person is not all of a sudden going to get possessed. In some way, uh, directly or sometimes indirectly, the people who get possessed tend to be people who wittingly or not have sort of invited something into their life of a dark nature. The woman I write about in the book, who was a Satanist, about whom they're going to make this Hollywood movie, she was she was an outright Satan worshiper. It's quite obvious why she became possessed. Um, and uh, you know, she she knew she was possessed, and she knew that this was sort of the price she had paid for uh, attaching herself to to Satan. Now, again, I'm not one of these people uh, who sees Satan everywhere, uh, which is kind of a dangerous tendency that certain people have. You know, we have a lot of people even in today's world who think Satan control, Satanists control the government. And back, back when I started, there was something called the Satanic Panic, where people were saying, you know, Satanists have kidnapped 50,000 people in you know, a certain year. Um, I mean, people have checked that out. There weren't 50,000 kids who were missing, number one. And most of those kids were known to be runaways. So there can be hysteria about Satanism and Satanists. But uh, there's no question, uh, because I've talked to a few of them uh, with supporting evidence, there are a few of these Satanists around. Um, They're not... They're not the most pleasant people in the world. I, I want to get to that, especially with the false memory thing. 
a little later, but I wanted to kind of talk about the stages of the of I guess really I put it as demonic attack, uh, which is infestation, oppression, and then finally possession. And we've talked about possession, but what are these stages? And you interviewed many of these people that that had these. And there's with oppression, there's a couple. There's like external, and there's also internal oppression. Yeah, the terminology differs from culture to culture. For instance, in in Italy, where I attend this meeting every couple of years, they use slightly different language. In America, we tend to talk about three varieties of what we call extraordinary attacks of demonic forces, as opposed to, say, typical temptations, which hardly explain all evil in the world, but that would be... Uh, you know, Christians would regard that as a an ordinary attack, and many other religions as well. Um, but the extraordinary attacks are are three. Uh, infestations is when demons are attacking a a house or a locale. These are things like hauntings. Um, you know, trying to intimidate and scare people. Um, oppressions is a broad variety which is confusing to a lot of people. It can be either an external attack, like that woman I originally talked about who claimed to be beaten up by evil spirits. Uh, That's an external attack, as opposed to an internal attack where um, the demons can affect people's senses or even give them occult messages, which are very different than, say, hallucinations or something. So you have to make that distinction. And then there's possessions. And you're right, there can be a staging. A a lot of possessed patients, for instance, uh, that I've, uh, I don't call them patients, I'll call them victims because they're not, these people, by the way, are not not patients of mine. You know, it's not like I treat these people because they need spiritual help, not medical or psychiatric help. But, um, the uh, people who are genuinely possessed, this rare group, uh, they will also, they, they often will report, not always, but they'll often report uh, features of infestation in their house. And most cases of possessions also start out with more typically oppressive phenomena. Although there are plenty of people who are oppressed, there, there are more people who are oppressed than possessed, although it's not common. Those people um, do not necessarily go on to um, uh, a full possession. Right. And sometimes there's the distinction between internal and external. Yeah. The, the external is, uh, you know, I started to say, like somebody who would feel beaten up by a spirit, sort of on the outside of their body. The internal would be more someone whose consciousness is affected in a major way. For instance, their senses may be affected. Uh, In the gospel, there's a a deaf and mute possessed individual. I've seen cases like that. There was one woman who had, uh, I write about in the book, she was a, a housewife. And I write about, and she had gotten involved in some sort of foolhardy, uh, foolish, um, satanic practices when she was young. Um, Now, you would ask her, I call her by the pseudonym uh, Catherine in the book, 
you would ask her a question and she would be able to hear you and answer the question because in between the possessed states, it's not like the person is manifesting 24 seven, they go in and out of these states. And sometimes it actually uh, surfaces mostly during an exorcism. But you could ask this woman that I call Catherine, uh, and I did on a number of occasions, having heard this uh, impairment she had, I would say to Catherine, um, well, Catherine, what did you do this morning? And she'd say, well, I took the, uh, you know, she was from a relatively rural area. She said, I I took the pickup truck and I went to the gas station and I stopped off at the, um, the butcher and bought some beef. In other words, she was perfectly coherent. But then I would ask her a question of a religious nature. And people had reported this to me. And I verified that when I asked her a question, for instance, Catherine, did you go to church? Or Catherine, did you pray today? Mm -hmm. She would look at me quizzically like, what are you saying? I I, I see your mouth moving, but I don't hear the words. And that's an obvious attempt by the demon to interfere with her hearing so that she could not get any uh, pastoral support. She had a local doctor who checked out her hearing. Her, Her hearing apparatus was perfectly normal, but she was having her sense blocked by these demonic forces. Uh, which is which is again similar to some of the stories in the gospel. So uh, another psychiatrist and I, we had this bright idea. Well, instead of asking her a question like that verbally, we'll write it down on a piece of paper. So we took a piece of paper and we held it up before her, and we said, we wrote on the paper, Catherine. Uh, what did you buy at the store this morning? And she'd say, well, I bought some milk and some bread. And then we we held up the, the phrase uh, written down on this piece of paper. Catherine, have you lost all hope in God? Do you try to pray to our Lord? And I remember her looking at me quizzically and saying, Dr. Gallagher, why are you showing me a blank piece of paper? So it's quite clear that the demons selectively, and sometimes they can do it fully, but selectively had decided to block our hearing when anything of a spiritual nature was being conveyed to her. And it had the, she was quite discouraged by the possession. It had the effect of demoralizing her because she couldn't, she couldn't get sort of pastoral advice and support from anyone around her. So it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. Now, that's an example of what we call an internal um, internal oppression. You have to wear the point that it was, it was literally clouding her senses, not just her hearing, but sight as well. Yeah. Fearing or confusing her senses. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and again, you know, I, I don't want to act like these are, singular cases that these these type of phenomena have been reported for centuries. I always emphasize, by the way, you know, um, 
obviously I wouldn't have written this book unless I thought it had some value. And, you know, as a professor of psychiatry, I'm not going to just make up stories. Uh, I wrote the book, uh, not expecting to convince everybody, but expecting at least people with an open mind to uh, benefit from learning about this subject. Uh, and people have told me that's exactly what they they how they have experienced the book. They, they thank me for writing the book. But I also tell people, you know, you don't have to believe me. Uh, every two years I go to this conference in Italy where I speak to 500 exorcists. And they all have stories like mine. And many of them have written books. There are other psychiatrists who have also done the same thing. I just think that, you know, because I've probably seen so many of these cases and because I'm a professor of psychiatry, I have a little more credibility. But, uh, you know, don't kid yourself. I mean, there are many people in the world who have these stories. You two guys have probably heard a few of these type of things before yourself. So you know that, uh, you know, this stuff exists. The question becomes how you how you explain them. I mean, again, you know, I, I mentioned these 500 exorcists who all have stories like mine that I that I convene with every two years. And it reminds me, I know this is somewhat of a religious point. Uh, I, I won't I won't beat the drum about the subject. But it reminds me of what St. Paul said when he went from uh, the Holy Land to Corinth, which is a little bit like perhaps a preacher from Kansas going to San Francisco or something. And he said to the Corinthians, these very sophisticated uh, ancient Greeks, he said, look, I the resurrected Jesus appeared to me. But you don't have to believe me. He also appeared, I mean, this is very clear in the letter to the Corinthians. You, you also, he also appeared to about 500 other people. Uh, and you can go talk to them. Most of them are still alive. So I like to say, you know, people act like, you know, there's very little evidence for these things. But just as for the resurrection, I mean, there is plenty of evidence that these phenomena possessions exist. Now, people are going to argue about exactly what they are, I suppose. But, you know, it's fairly obvious to me, having attended exorcisms where after lying for quite a while about who they are, they may say they're dead souls. They may say they're pagan deities. Uh, in this age of neo-paganism. I had a guy who was possessed who told me that uh, he was possessed by Zeus, and he asked me if I wanted to speak to Zeus. Uh, <clears throat> now, I declined, but it shows how throughout history these demons have pretended to be something else. They pretended to be deities, as the ancient Jewish thinkers finally realized even even prior to Christianity. Um, and they appear to be, or they, they act like they are dead souls. They may say, this is Nero, this is Hitler, this is Judas Iscariot. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting to me is that eventually during the exorcism, 
when they are literally compelled, again, not by the exorcist, the exorcist doesn't have that power. Ultimately, it's the prayers of the exorcist, which are asking God, our Lord, to um, deliver the person under that compulsion of of something divine, uh, these demons are forced to admit who they really are. And that's when you get the naming of, of themselves as a demon. But it's only with great reluctance because they're used to, they're used to kind of hiding themselves all throughout history. They're used to lying to people. I mean, they're very much like narcissists and sociopaths in their personality, quite frankly. Interesting. So you had the opportunity to assess the demons' personalities <laughs> as well. That's interesting. Like human beings, they they, yeah. they all have their different personalities. Right. There are these common features of what we would call severe personality disorders of a gravitation to sadism, evil, um, dishonesty, cruelty, uh, obviously an evil uh, a spirit. If you think about it, a spiritual force, in other words, a non-material force that's attacking human beings, if if words have any meaning, that's whatever you think of the uh, theology behind it, that's an evil spirit. What is the purpose of getting the demon to, to reveal its name? What is the, the purpose of that? Well, it's not something magic. What it indicates is a is a... It indicates that the exorcism is proceeding because as opposed to in the beginning where they're hiding themselves, the demon is forced to submit to the authority of the exorcist. So they're forced to reveal something about themselves that they don't want to reveal. So it's a good sign that the exorcism is succeeding in getting control over the demon. And it's often uh, on the path towards uh the person being delivered it could appear magical though to some people because so much of the ritual magic and demonology stuff is based on knowing the names and using the names of these entities yeah and i don't think it is magic i i draw a major distinction between magic which is often um occultic in 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 practice, when it's not just trickery or something like that. Uh, I mean, there are these magicians who claim, you know, they can mimic everything that we're talking about today, which is totally absurd. I'd like to, I'd like to see a magician all of a sudden speak fluent Bulgarian, you know. Um, but there is a distinction between magic and what we're talking about here. Here we're talking about supernatural power. I mean, there are two major forces. I mean, to broaden the discussion to the paranormal, uh, see, the traditional religious or Christian or spiritual understanding of the paranormal is that the paranormal does exist, but that's a pseudoscientific term for describing things that have a spiritual background. Now, sometimes people just make mistakes and people, you know, have misperceptions or they may see, see things that aren't there. Uh, maybe they make up stories, you know, so uh, maybe they're overly superstitious. 
But essentially, the authentic parapsychological phenomena tend to be divided by Christian theologians into either supernatural, meaning it's from God. I mean, there are gifted people who have spiritual gifts. And most of the rest is demonic tricks. And the word, the technical word for that would be preternatural. You know, I, re I recently wrote an article about, um, you know, published in a religious journal about um, the paranormal in modern society and its division into either preternatural, if authentic, into either preternatural or supernatural um, categories. And uh, the supernatural phenomena are relatively rare. Um, in many ways, the preternatural phenomena are, are attempts to um, fool and scare people often. And, uh, you know, we believe that a lot, of, a lot of that comes from the demonic world. Do you think that these exorcisms depend on the Latin language and that specific rite of exorcism? No, they don't depend on Latin at all. In fact, most, most of the exorcisms in America now are done in English. Uh, so again, you know, I I think it should be a, a disabused of the notion that this is some kind of magic or that this is some kind of formula like a witch doctor. A witch mm -hmm. doctor would be regarded as sort of doing mumbo-jumbo prayers and, and would define him, him or self, might define himself as sort of engaging in, in good magic. Uh, Exorcism is a totally different moral universe. Uh, in fact, without the cooperation of the individual. So what Hollywood gets wrong about this stuff is Hollywood will often assume that exorcisms are magic prayers, and they're not. That it's like a compulsion that, that doesn't depend on the individual. It doesn't usually depend on the individual exorcist, although I think sometimes very holy exorcists achieve a little more, probably because their prayers are more effective. But it's not they themselves who are doing the liberation. It's it's God. And at the same time, and this may be one of these strange reasons why possessions exist but are allowed by God, who, of course, doesn't cause doesn't cause them, but allows a lot more evil in the world than, than some people are uh, comfortable acknowledging um, God may somehow permit. Um, but the individual who is possessed and who has generally, again, wittingly or unwittingly invited the demon in, uh, has to reform their life. So, for instance, I dealt with this one guy, uh, I call him in the book Juan, and he was a uh, he was a, a drug lord, and he was a criminal who had turned to the Mexican dark cult, Santa Muerte, and he became possessed. And it was found out when he went to, uh, went to prison by the prison chaplain that he was possessed. Now, he got the message, and he returned to... You know the Christian faith of his youth. He worked at he worked at getting his spiritual life in order, and he eventually was delivered. 
Whereas this uh, woman I call in the book, Julia, this incredibly flamboyant, possessed Satanist, uh, she was always afraid to leave the cult. On some level, I don't think she wanted to leave the cult, let alone she was afraid of the cult. And so she was never delivered. Uh, she had eight exorcisms, and they, they never succeeded in liberating her from the demon because uh, uh, she refused to reform her life. I mean, she kept she kept um, worshiping Satan while she was having the possessions, which I pointed out to her. Look, you know, Julia, not a real name. You, you you can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Why did she seek out the help if she was still doing it? What was was there? A, did she have a motivation for that? It- well, uh, again, she was she was not a highly educated woman, but she was she was she was pretty intelligent. And I got to know her very well. And what she told me was that she knew she was possessed mm. and she didn't want to be possessed. But at the mm-hmm. same time, she didn't want to give up her satanic practices. And I always told her, I said, well, then you're not going to be delivered. I mean, the church attempted to do exorcisms on her, hoping to weaken the possession, recognizing that until she truly renounced these type of practices, she was never going to be fully delivered. And that proved to be the case. And eventually she kind of dropped out. I think in part she was afraid of the cult, I mean, she may have had some strategy to, you know, get the priest in trouble. Uh, She told me at one point that that's what she told the cult members she was doing. But I think her prime motivation is she knew she was possessed and she, she wanted to be relieved of the possession. But, you know, she didn't want to change her lifestyle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, incident with the cats? This is an interesting episode in the book. Yeah, that's how I first came to know her. Uh, I mean, I was um, in my in the bedroom with my wife, and and we had two cats who were normally you know well behaved and placid cats, and all of a sudden, at about three a.m., they went berserk and they started clawing each other and fighting each other. I describe it like like two prize fighters. And we were really afraid that they were going to, you know, we woke up from the screeching and we really thought they were going to seriously hurt each other. So we separated them. We put them in different rooms and, you know, we went back to sleep and I didn't think much of it. I thought maybe they, maybe they ate something that was tainted or something. Who knows? Maybe they had a little too much catnip or something. (laughs) But the very next morning, and it was actually to my annoyance, this uh, priest uh, who I call Father Jacques, um, he brought this woman to my house. Uh, I later told I later told him in no uncertain terms 
uh, look, Father, uh, try not to bring a Satanist to my neighborhood, okay? <laughs> right. And he later apologized. He said, well, look, uh, Rich, I told you I wanted you to meet this woman, and she just came in town. We want to keep this moving. But I opened the door, and he and this woman are looking at me, and the first words out of her mouth were with a smirk. She said, so, Dr. Gallagher, nice to meet you. Um, by the way, how'd you like those cats last night? Now, this is the first time I ever met her. Hmm. And I, I really was taken aback. I later told her that if she, if she pulled any trick like that again, I obviously assume, although she never apologized, I, I, I obviously assume that she was involved somehow, or at least knew about it. Uh, and... Uh, I said, I'm not going to deal with you. And she was she was she was pretty respectful to me. She was always very honest with me. I think she appreciated that I was trying to help her. And in fact, you know, at the end of our meetings, which again, she was not a patient. I just met with her because the priest wanted me to explore her motivation, which eventually I did find out. Um she said to me, you know, Dr. Gallagher, you, you've tried to help me. I appreciate that. Um, if you want to tell my story, you, you can go ahead and do it. Uh, just, you know, don't don't reveal my identity or any family members uh, or where I live. And, and, you know, I've always honored that to this day. I'm curious if um, you mentioned earlier the satanic panic and you were practicing psychiatry during that time. Um I wanted to know, has it made it more difficult since uh, so much of this media stuff around exorcism and possession has entered pop culture? It's got to have informed some of these people's actual pathologies and psychiatric problems. Is that Has that made it more difficult to parse out the two? There's always been people who are deluded. I mean, during the 50s, you know, people were worried about communists under every bed. Uh, there are other eras where people are worried about the CIA or the FBI. Uh, it's sort of, I see it mostly as sort of a cultural phenomenon. Um, there, there are people who have come to me. I also write about these false cases in the book, and I mentioned this um, guy who came to me claiming that you know, um, his minister, he was Protestant, that his minister was a Satanist and had killed a baby in front of him and that sort of thing. Now, he wasn't so much grossly delusional as he had what we call a false memory. Uh, and, you know, people get false memories for different reasons, complicated reasons. Uh, this guy, I think, was overly influenced by his mother to believe something like that because she was a little bit of a, you know, preoccupied with Satanism in her town. And, uh, you know, right from the start, I didn't believe him. When I was at Cornell, I had done some studies on true and false memory. And I knew darn well that most cases of abuse, for instance, just general abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, most cases were credible. Uh, but people would generally remember them. Uh, the false cases would often be some kind of recovered memory, as it was in the case of this kid. 
and a lot of those are in fact unreliable so i mean it's another thing that i sometimes do as a psychiatrist i'll try to help some minister or uh priest uh understand what might be true memories but also what might be false memories of uh satanists that sort of thing and there and there are and there definitely are false false memories in addition there are people who just make up stories and that's a whole nother category how are false memories planted into someone well, I'm not sure I would use the word planted. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, memories are, I mean, you're talking to a psychoanalyst here. I'm a Colombian psychoanalyst. So, you know, uh, there are different paths to distortions of memories. Often they will be influenced by their culture, their subculture, which may be very fundamentalist. Uh, they may be um wanting to believe something like that happened, misinterpret things. Uh, Somebody else may say to them, well, I think you have problems. You must have had, uh, sometimes it's therapist generated. Uh, You have problems. There must have been something in your past. And, you know, maybe they'll have a dream about satanist and then they'll they'll believe the dream i mean there are different pathways to why people have false memory i mean it's a serious enough problem it just shouldn't obscure the fact that most people who are abused do not have false memories it it seemed that in the 80s with the satanic panic that a lot of it was based off of false oh yeah i'm I'm not denying that either but you're talking about a subculture of the population you know you're talking about a certain group often very fundamentalist, perhaps poorly educated, um, or people looking for sensationalism in their lives for some reason, who kind of um, encourage these stories to be propagated in, especially in very suggestible people. I mean, there are people who are suggestible, and these are the kind of people who, you know, become multiple personality or... um, believers that they were ritually abused or something. I mean, there are these rare cases, you know, a lot of times hysterical beliefs are based on some kernel of reality. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, there are nefarious plots in the world. Uh, Sure. If you have a certain personality, maybe lean towards suspiciousness or sensationalism, you know, you begin to think that these things are all over the place. With respect to demonic stuff, I mean, I've always found the advice of C.S. Lewis pretty sensible. And and, and Lewis, Lewis was knowledgeable about the demonic. And he used to say... Uh, one era is to believe that the devil and demons don't exist. An equally dangerous era, uh, an, an equally dangerous belief system is to believe they're everywhere controlling everything. Certainly, uh, you know, they're, they're incapable of taking away people's free will. People have free will. It's often said about a possession that they can 
they can, in that rare instance, control some of the behavior of the individual, but they are really just taking over the body. They're not, they're not taking over the soul, so to speak. They can't, they can't, you know, warp somebody's free will. We all still have our free will, whatever the level of influence demons have on us or not. One more question about the false memories. The young man that said that he witnessed the pastor kill the baby, that was done through hypnosis. Is hypnosis a good thing, a good tool, or is it um, or in the wrong hands? Can it be dangerous to where you could mess somebody up with doing that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, in modern psychological treatments, I mean, there are a few people who hypnotize people, not very many. Yeah, uh, it's in general, it's it's not a very um, effective technique. You know, Freud himself and Freud had his own issues. Don't get me started on Freud. But Freud himself <laughs> started out as kind of hypnotizing people and he gave it up. Uh, he didn't think it was very effective. Probably was not a very good hypnotist as well. But um, yeah, that's the kind of thing I was referring to when I said that sometimes it's the therapist who uh, unwittingly dredge up these memories by things like, you know, reconstructing memories that the person originally didn't under, didn't remember or claim not to remember. And number two, uh, by using techniques like hypnosis. So hypnosis, which is not by and large accepted in the U.S. court system, by the way, um, as being unreliable, um, it also uh, can uh, dredge up false memories at times. There's no question. Uh, so sometimes, sometimes the creation of false memories is mostly the fault of the poorly trained professional. Have mental health professionals really moved away from it? In the by last, and large, yeah. yeah. By and large, yeah. yeah. And by and large, there's more awareness now that. You know, some of these wacky stories. I mean, sometimes sometimes people are just delusional about, mm -hmm. say, you know, mm -hmm. out, out and right psychotic. Uh, other times, uh, you know, they think they remember things. And, you know, if you really investigate it, th those things never happened. Is there often some kind of underlying real um, experiences or abuse that, took place and then you see people kind of building these narratives around that with something like demonic possession or we see it with themes of mind control or other victimizations where they kind of put themselves in the center of this grand kind of conspiracy or something like that yeah things like that. i mean things like that can happen too sure yeah i mean people are certain people are very susceptible to manipulation and suggestibility I write about another woman in the book who uh, <clears throat> I was asked to evaluate. And, you know, she slithered, slithered on the floor and she, you know, started babbling. Uh, I mean, neither myself nor the priest felt there was anything demonic or possession-like about her. But she and her, uh, in this case, minister, uh, were convinced until we disabused them of the notion. 
And then if you if you examined their history, you saw that this was a very vulnerable, attention-seeking individual. So uh, usually there'll be something in the personal history or personality structure, which uh, helps explain why uh, someone comes up with these either false memory or, you know, sometimes without consciously recognizing it, thinks they are possessed or something. You mentioned that you met uh, Malachi Martin. Uh, can you can you talk about that and some of your impressions of him? Yeah, he was a uh, charming guy. He was um, very erudite. Uh, he had some experience in the field, although um, I think people who read his book sometimes got the impression that he was more of an exorcist than he was. He kind of often described himself as an assistant to the exorcist. Um, I always felt that his case studies in the book were a little um, choreographed or stereotyped, I guess would be a better word. They were kind of always proving some ideological point that he had to make. Right. So there were there were some people, um, you know, who thought some of those stories were inaccurate, or at least elaborated. <clears throat> Maybe this was the Irish Blarney in him. Uh, but having said that, I mean, yeah, he was pretty knowledgeable about the field. Uh, I, I never quite knew. I was going to ask him at one point, but when I met him, he was pretty elderly, and eventually uh, we lost touch because. Um, you know, he was sick. And um, to this day, I'm never quite sure how much of those stories were mm -hmm. 100% true or how much he might have uh, used a little poetic license. I mean, speaking of that ideological basis, what do you think about some of that without getting, you know, I guess too political or doctrinal? The ideas from people like Malachi Martin and other more traditionalist Catholics that changes within the, the church caused more possessions to begin to occur and that dependence on Latin earlier, what I asked you about, you know, that definitely relates to it and those kind of issues. I mean, I think the extreme view is a little implausible, you know, uh, what 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 some people will maintain is that as the culture has moved away, not from traditional Christianity, but from sort of a more orthodox mainstream perspective, not just Catholics, but also, you know, the mainstream Protestant churches, as people have moved away from what I, reg what I re would regard as authentic Catholicism, and certainly I, I regard, you know, the new mass as well as the Latin mass, both as authentic. Um, but as people, as as in a way, the culture has become a little more, you might say, paganized and moved away from traditional Christianity. It may be that there are more people who are flirting with beliefs that make them more susceptible to demonic forces. I think that's plausible, although I think it would be very hard to convince people uh, or get statistics on that sort of thing. There aren't really statistics kept on this stuff. I mean, a lot of it depends on the culture, too. You know, you talk about Haiti, 
I mean, pretty much everybody in Haiti, everybody in Madagascar believes in possessions and demons. In America, we always had a sort of great faith in science. And of course, I don't disparage science. As a, as a physician, I'm very committed to science. But science is not, all, all knowledge is not is not just subject to lab experiments. There are other types of knowledge, like historical knowledge. In America, you know, we were very much, like when I was a kid, uh, very much into rationalism and, you know, anti-superstition and all that. And so there was a kind of uh, skepticism uh, about stuff that we're talking about tonight. Uh, on the other hand, especially with the Exorcist movie, as you imply with the media, uh, there's developed um, so much more of an interest in this sort of thing that on the one hand, certain people are more aware of these phenomena and or are prone to imagine that it's happening to themselves. And on the other hand, it may be that there are some more of these cases in America because, you know, we now live in a country that paradoxically tends to be a little less committed to science as well as a little less committed to mainstream religion, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. very interesting mm -hmm. that we've not only moved away from more traditional Christianity, but also from there's been like a re-enchantment away from rationalism at the same right. time. Right, right. Yeah, that's what I believe. And again, I, I don't want to give any impression to anybody, certainly not your audience. I, I am very committed to science. I mean, I have to be as a doctor. And I do believe in evolution. I believe that God used evolution to create man. And some people feel as a contradiction in terms. But I also believe in the Big Bang. I believe, obviously, in antibiotics and stuff like that. So I'm very committed to science. But I also recognize the principles behind what might be called modern scientific protocols are based on a type of materialistic hypothesis. Technically, it's called methodological naturalism, which on the one hand is very effective because mm -hmm. it allows us to isolate variables and study things in a rigorous way. But on the other hand, can give people the impression, and this is what we call scientism, that science has all the answers, when in fact there's a lot of phenomena and there's a lot of historical facts that we know are true, but which can't be studied scientifically, so to speak. People sometimes say, well, how come you don't have audio tapes and videotapes of these exorcisms? Well, there are two answers. I mean, one more simple answer is that, you know, at least the Catholic Church, uh, uh, for which I primarily consult, and I am a consultant, uh, you know, these are not patients, they, they tend to forbid, you know, videotaping. Now, there are audio tapes of people, but they never seem to really convince people. There have been some videotapes that are pretty uh, graphic, but then people say, well, you know, they were doctored. Or another thing that people find hard to uh, accept, I think, sometimes, this, the skeptical crowd. Uh, the skeptical crowd will say, uh, well, where are the videotapes? And I've had people show me videotapes 
And this shows that, you know, evil spirits as spirits are primarily interested in causing spiritual damage to people. However, they have some ability to affect material reality. Otherwise, infestations, making noises and all that. I mean, unless they had some ability to affect material reality, uh, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't really hear about them. And they also seem to have this ability to interfere with electronic communications at times. I mean, I've had that happen to me on my computer and stuff. And and so as pretty much every experienced exorcist I've ever talked to. But they also can, believe it or not, they can erase videotapes. So I, I've had enthusiastic people who videotaped something dramatic in an exorcism. Mm. And I'll say, Dr. Gallagher, i got to show you this. And then they play it to me, and they say, "Oh my God, it's erased!" You know, nothing. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's always technical ineptitude. I think sometimes mm-hmm. demons literally have the ability to erase videotapes. But again, the evidence to me throughout history is so powerful that you, you almost have to close your eyes to this stuff not to believe in it. The, the greatest compendium of cases of possession i say we're moving on on time so uh with you guys forgiveness will probably end soon if you don't mind the uh the most the magnum opus or the most complete compendium of possessions throughout history was written by a german professor his name was trugod osterreich about 100 years ago and he finds evidence um of possessions in pretty much all cultures throughout history and gives examples. And he is struck as a serious historian and he was a psychologist. He was a kind of parapsychologist, uh, an early parapsychologist. He said, what strikes me is the similarities across the culture, which indicates to him that there's something, you know, genuine going on, that this is not just culturally influenced beliefs. and he was agnostic. He was not. He was not Christian or anything. Right. Uh, but he was. He was an honest enough student of the field that he recognized that there are these unexplained phenomena reported rarely and sometimes mistakenly. You know, because as, as we talked about earlier, you know, there are cases of uh, dissociation and in cases of epilepsy and temporal lobe epilepsy which were you know at times mistaken for possession but he he feels that the to use the uh a term that i regard as pseudoscientific because it doesn't really explain things to um to deny that there are paranormal phenomena that have been part and parcel of possession in history i i think is is simply mistaken and short-sighted. You know, you don't know the evidence if you argue that. I suppose you can take this evidence and come up with all kinds of strange hypotheses. Human beings seem very, very capable of coming up with explanations for almost anything they don't want to believe. But I, I clearly believe the most rational assessment of the literature is the traditional one, that these are possessions by evil spirits. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, Very compelling. I want to thank you, Dr. Gallagher, for coming on. Where can people uh, find the book? 
Well, like everything else, you can sort of get it on Amazon. That's probably right. the easiest way. <laughs> That's it, what I did. It is in bookstores. It's in, on the HarperCollins website. Um, but certainly, uh, certainly that's a great way to, easy way to get the book is very readily available through Amazon. Excellent. And when is the movie coming out? Movies take time. So I think it's going to be a couple of years. It's going to be based on the Julia case. I originally didn't want to really lend my name to the story, but mm. I was convinced by a big uh, Hollywood producer. You guys may be familiar with him, Jason Blum, who does a lot of yeah. mm-hmm. The Conjuring, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was very intrigued by the story. He called it the hottest intellectual property he'd ever seen, which... Hey, <laughs> I must feel good to be a part of that. Coming from him was a high compliment because... Um, you know, he's a is a, is is one of the most successful Hollywood producers. So, you know, we expect the movie out in probably in about two years. It'll be called The Satanic Queen, and it will be based on Chapter Three of my book. There is a movie coming out about Father Amworth, I believe. Just like I think this weekend, I think, or it might have already premiered. Yeah, yeah. There was a movie that I regarded as disappear, uh, disappointing a couple of years ago about him, and we'll see what they do with him. I I knew Father Amworth. He was, yeah, he was a bit of a character too. But that's a whole other story. Are you talking about the William Freakin documentary? Yes. Yeah. Which I thought was unfortunate because, you know, they filmed an exorcism, which is, first of all, it's frowned upon to do that. But at the end, the woman clearly reverts after the whole crowd. Uh, I've, I've, I've never seen an exorcism with a whole yeah. crowd of people. Uh, this was a bunch of Italian villagers and everybody's celebrating her liberation. And then at the end of the movie, uh she reverts back to her possessed state and you know it leaves the impression either the exorcism was unsuccessful uh which in a way it was or you know this whole thing is a little bit nonsense you know i thought uh, it, i thought it was unfortunate that um amorth that was about two years before he died yeah. uh, i i knew him quite well we had a couple of little debates about some stuff uh, but you know, I don't want to disparage him. He was, it was, it was an experienced, intelligent guy. All right, Dr. Gallagher, thank you so much, guys. We're gonna, we're gonna close out this part, and uh, guys, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, that was a, that was a really interesting interview. Absolutely. Really happy with that one. Oh. Really happy with most of them. Yeah, we've got some great <laughs> things that I'm not happy with with anything that we do. But that was uh, that was that was fascinating. Yeah, I think he brought a really uh, balanced view and um, something that that we can relate to. You know. Yeah. So the book is really interesting, guys. If you get a chance to read it, I would uh, definitely pick it up and read it. A lot of people that listen to us are probably not Christian at this point. But uh, if you could deal with some of the things where, you know, talking about the occult and, and try to, like, you know, if you're an occultist or you're into that stuff, which I know a lot of people that probably listen to us are now into that. But, you know, if you can if you can deal with that, just, you know, try to overlook that, which is not a very big part of the book. But it's a very nuanced book. And I found him to be very... Uh, very practical 
in his assessment and just trying to figure out what he also yeah witnessed it's i mean he's himself. very forthcoming about the yeah. his cosmology and faith and i don't think it's unfair to to say that people whose own cosmology and practice is centered around contacting extra human intelligences might encounter a bad variety of that i mean that's that's pretty fair as far as i see things and i'm well kind of where i fall in on it and this is not to like disparage the people that actually do this i mean if you're experienced there you go but there are some people that are probably not experienced and just get into this because i think it's the cool thing to do and sometimes the way that the way that i look at it is that if you're messing with you're messing with things that are probably it's like it's like going and poking the lion's cage you know and you're probably messing but you're probably messing with something that that you don't know what you're messing with so it could be telling you one thing and then it actually be something else so when if you don't know what you're messing with even if that's that the is problem. in the most strict materialist interpretation even if that is just unknown parts of your mind right right yeah i mean i i'm i'm fascinated by the whole idea of demonic possession i mean it's something that i've always been fascinated by and like what is it mm-hmm. you know what could it what could it possibly be and you know if you believe in the supernatural world or the preternatural world or the paranormal world or whatever term you want to use then you kind of have to say that there's probably some good things out there and there's probably some bad things out there. And sometimes those bad things are probably going to manifest themselves in a certain way. And sometimes they could take over. I'm not above like understanding that. Yeah. Or thinking that. So there you go. I mean, I, you know, yeah, I think it was a very, very balanced uh, way of looking at things. And like I said, he was totally forthcoming about where he's coming from. And yeah. uh, he's a very uh, scientific, accredited person of faith. So there's plenty of nuance, um, but an acknowledgement that there is that unseen realm. Right, exactly. I was waiting for you to, you know, ask about the traditionalist Catholic angle, but I'm glad that I piped up with it. Um, It wasn't something that I really wanted to really wanted to get into. Um, Just if you guys have seen my presentation that I did at Strange Realities of 2021, and I did actually before that in one of our online things, which I'm going to make an announcement about that. I'll make an announcement about several things actually on this episode before we leave. Uh, but yeah, I, I went through some of that and some of the um, traditionalist Catholic influence on this world of exorcism, and I'm specifically looking through the lens of the of the of Ed and Lorraine Warren. That's got, that's kind of how I did it, and kind of their influence, and yeah. So I want to make an announcements about some things. Oh. All right. All right. First of all, not quite sure Sirfiel's going to be on the next episode, but uh, he's not off the show, so don't worry about that. I but Sirfiel is moving. I'm leaving Dixie, y'all. He's leaving Dixie. Yeah, he's 
I don't. Yeah, you. I I'm guess you're not technically the, a Yankee, right? But yeah, gonna, the Great Northwest. Yeah, where are you moving to, Sergio? I'm moving to the Seattle area of Washington. Yeah, about a 20 minutes drive from uh, from the town they made Twin Peaks after. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, we nice. went out to the diner and all that. Oh, oh yeah, you did. I saw those pictures. Yeah, so. Uh, that is not the end of Conspiranormal. I, I think some not people at all. thought that that was going to be the me end. Me and Adam may not <laughs> stay friends, and for some reason I want to uh, stop doing Conspiranormal. Not at all. But you see how we talk to that? We, we usually speak to guests over, over Zoom, and that's how we're going to be doing the the show yeah, over yeah, Zoom. We'll hanging out uh, with each other. Which is what actually most podcasters do. Instead of actually being together, it's kind of a luxury Nowadays, that we're yeah, actually yeah. together. You know, there's a, usually a lot of podcasters they do they they, they do things you know remotely anyway. And there's Adam been, will have to to continue on uh, with the exploration of the the secrets of esoteric Nashville, uh, and I'll, I'll have to leave him all my all my research for him to carry it on and find the Jesse James treasure and everything else. You're gonna put yeah. You're gonna put me in, onto that, huh? Okay. If I find the treasure, I'll share it with you, man. I promise. All right. So that's one announcement. Uh, Sergio is going to be going through this transition in the next like few weeks, I believe, and then he's getting married. So things might be a little spotty here with Sergio for just a little bit. But uh, next week, actually, I've got uh, our my good friend Heather. Uh, we're going to talk about a. We're gonna do like kind of like a book review show on a book that her and I have both read. I think Surfiel may be here for that. We'll just see. But right now things are gonna be a little bit up in the air uh, as far as that. So wish Surfiel well on his move, guys, and that everything goes well. So a lot of lot of changes, but uh, it's it's all for the better, as they say. All right. Also, big announcement: Strange Realities Conference. I have set the dates for November 3rd through the 5th and finally made my decision on what we're going to do. We are going to do it as we did it last year, except for a slight difference. Friday, November 3rd and Saturday, November 4th will be at SIR Nashville. It will be live and online as well. But November 5th, Guy Fox Day, November fifth will be uh, online only, which I will be doing here from my apart lovely apartment, and I'm sure Sergio will be there from wherever he is in, in oh, man, the I'm Seattle area. No, no, actually, 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 Sergio is going to be here, so he'll be here in Nashville. What am I even thinking? He'll be here, but so November third through the fifth, Strange Realities Conference, guys. Uh, Tickets will be up soon in the next few weeks. Not quite sure of the ticket price yet. We'll probably pretty much probably be doing the same thing that we did last year. So stay tuned for more info on that. Might just be slightly adjusted for inflation. Yes. And also April 21st, I believe. Let me make sure that that date is correct. We will be doing the first of our... Hangouts, yes, April 21st, and this time we will be doing it with W.T. Watson, who will be doing a presentation for people on our Patreon, $10 and above level. 
and also people that would pay ten dollars to get in so that's going to be over that is purely over zoom uh be a good good hangout for for that night and we're going to be starting to get those ball rolling on that uh moving forward hopefully every month except probably october we'll see about that i know that's that's a good ways away also i wanted to announce we've got a lot going on i uh i am producing a youtube channel called nevaeh's nightmare okay the way you spell that just think of the word heaven spell it backwards so nevaeh's nightmare Guys, go subscribe to that channel, watch the videos, enjoy them. They're just uh, small, like five to ten minute videos talking about some of the things that we talk about here, but except really, really condensed down. So you guys will uh, enjoy, hopefully enjoy those. Uh, support You can support us by supporting that as well, and because it's all the same thing. Also, our Patreon still available. Tried to get some Patreons out, even though things might be a little difficult over the next We're few weeks. We're recording one tonight. We are going to record one here in just a few minutes. But we but, know that more than just hearing these extra Patreon episodes, right. you all become patrons so that you are imparted with these uh, secret degrees of ancient wisdom that come from joining this uh, collection of secret societies known as the International Association of Conspiranormalists, the mystic crew of Conspiranormal, and the ancient circle of strange realities. Which, if you join the uh, the later two, you can get into those. Uh, you can get in every month to yes. see those excellent presentations that we will have from our excellent presenters. Yes. So, there is that as well. So, patreon.com slash conspiranormal. All right, I think that's a good place to wrap it. Uh, guys, I want to thank Dr. Richard Gallagher for being on the show. Thanks, Serfiel, for doing everything that he does, and I'm going to miss him uh, being right next to me, but it is what it is. But he may be here next week. We're not sure. We'll see. But all right, guys, we'll talk to you later on Conspiranormal. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.